great bishop and doctor of the church, St. Alphonsus, says, quote, The reason why souls make so little progress in virtue and remain groveling in the same defects and even frequently relapse into grievous sins is because they take but little care to acquire the love of Jesus Christ, which is the golden cord that unites and binds the soul to God. To acquire the love of Jesus Christ, many persons pay much attention to other devotions but neglect this, whereas this love ought to be the principal object, indeed the only devotion of a Christian. Close quote. The reason why souls make so little progress in virtue and remain groveling in the same defects and even frequently backslide in mortal sins is because they take little care to acquire the love of Jesus Christ, whereas this love ought to be the principal devotion of all Christians. Love for our Lord is just what the Feast of the Sacred Heart is about. And that beautiful statue of the Sacred Heart really captures in art the essence of this feast. How can a work of art capture the essence of a great feast? In order to understand that, let's quickly review what we recently learned about holy icons. Remember that an icon is a work of religious art. It's a visual sermon. It's a sermon without words. It's the Word of God put into a visible form, a work of art that's meant to intuitively convey a theological message to the viewer. The whole point of a holy icon is to reveal something about inexpressible divine truths by using visible symbolic imagery. And the idea is, if we view this art regularly, the particular spiritual truths which are being proposed in that work of art will start to become part of our soul. That image will start filling the soul of the viewer. Just as if we listen to a symphony over and over, the particular musical themes start becoming part of our interior life. So also, by viewing an icon over and over, the theological themes, those truths, should fill our souls, okay? The more we view it, the more these spiritual themes are meant to soak into our souls and by that means become part of a fiber of our very being. Now let's take all that and apply it to that beautiful statue of the Sacred Heart over there, since today we're celebrating the external solemnity of this feast. That statue captures in art the essence of the feast. What do we see? Well, we see our Lord, and of course He's reaching out with open arms, He's got the wounded hands, and there, visible on his breast, is his heart, with a crown of thorns wrapped around the heart, and a wound piercing it, flames pouring forth from the top of it and surrounding it, and a cross, okay, cross rising up. So given that is an icon, an icon uses visible imagery to reveal something and express something about inexpressible divine truths, that it's meant to convey a theological message, and the more we view it, the more those truths are supposed to soak into our souls. Let's take a few minutes to consider what does all this mean? What exactly is the sermon being preached without words when we view that image? 
Well, obviously, that's an icon which summarizes and symbolizes in the first place the apparitions of our Lord to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque in the late 1600s. But the most basic point is that it's an image of our Lord. God became man. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And who's still dwelling amongst us? Right there in the most blessed sacrament of the altar. So let's start right there and spend a few minutes talking about Christ our Lord. But first we need to briefly review two terms that we looked at last time, and that's nature and person. Then we'll talk about our Lord Jesus Christ using those terms, and we'll rely in this little part heavily on Frank Sheed for the explanation. So nature. Imagine we're staying in a cabin in the woods, and we hear that funny noise at night. What is that? Is that a grizzled bear? Is it a coyote? Is it a wolf? What's out there? We're wondering what that is. When we ask the question, what is it, or the question, what can it do, we're asking a question about natures. Nature is the whatness of something. Fish have fish nature. They swim, they breathe water and so forth. Birds have bird nature. They lay eggs, they've got feathers. We have human nature. We've got a body and a rational soul. A spiritual soul. Men can walk and think and laugh and talk. In ordinary language, nature answers the questions, what is it or what can it do? That's nature. What is it or what can it do? It's the whatness of something. Person. We're in that cabin in the woods and then we hear somebody knocking at the door. Now, no normal per- no, no human being sitting there was going to go, what was that? We don't even know what it is. We say, who's there? Why? Because we already know it's someone with a human nature. When we ask the question, who, like who's there, we're asking a question about persons. Nature determines what something is and what it can do. But a person, in this case, that's who's doing the thing. That's who's knocking at the door. That's who's doing a particular action. I'm talking. My nature isn't talking. I'm standing here. My nature isn't standing here. Because I have a human nature, I can stand and talk. But my nature doesn't do anything I'm doing. You're sitting there. Your nature isn't sitting there. You're listening. Your nature isn't listening. A person performs actions. Remember, nature says, what is it or what can it do? But a person is, who is it? Who's actually performing this action, okay? So speaking, thinking, laughing, talking, all these things are possible because we have human nature. But our nature doesn't do them. We do. I do. A person, a particular person does them, okay? Now let's apply all this. Last time we looked at the Most Holy Trinity. In the Most Holy Trinity... There's one nature and three persons, huh? Now, we don't want to be irreverent here because we're talking about God. So we want to be careful. But another way of saying, when we say in the Most Holy Trinity there's one nature and three persons, another way of saying that is in the Holy Trinity there's one what and three whos. What is it? When we're talking, the whatness? God, divine nature. Who? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. Three persons, one nature. We express that beautifully in the creed that will be sung soon. Okay? Nature tells us what is it, what can it do. A person tells us who is it, who is doing it. In the Most Holy Trinity, we have one nature and three persons, or one whatness and three whos. That's just a review from last time. Okay? Now look at Christ our Lord. In Christ our Lord, there's one person and two natures. In Christ our Lord, there's one person and two natures. Without being irreverent, that means we could say there's one who 
The two witnesses. Okay, one person and two natures. Nature tells us what is it, what can it do. The person tells us who is it, who's actually doing it. In Christ our Lord, there's one person actually doing anything and two natures which determine what that one person can do. Unlike us that only have one nature to call on to do things, Christ our Lord has two natures, but there's only one person actually operating. Okay, so who is that one person in Christ our Lord? It's the second person of the most blessed trinity, God the Son, the divine word. It's a divine person. When we're talking about a person, Christ our Lord is a divine person. Our Lord is not the first person of the most blessed trinity. He's not God the Father. Our Lord is not the third person of the most blessed trinity. He's not God the Holy Ghost. Our Lord is the second person of the most blessed trinity, God the Son, the word. So if we ask our Lord, who are you? He's God the Son, the word made flesh, okay? But if we ask our Lord, what are you? He could give two answers because he's got two natures. He has two natures. He has two witnesses. He has divine nature and he has a human nature. And a human nature means he has a human body and a human soul. Since nature determines what something is and what it can do, and since our Lord has two natures, he can do everything that goes with being God. He can raise the dead, cast demons into hell, and multiply loaves and fishes and silence the waves. And he can also do everything that goes along with being a man. He can be born of the most blessed Virgin Mary. He can eat. He can work as a carpenter. He can drink. He can suffer. He can die. But remember that person tells us who is it, who's actually doing it, which means that whatever our Lord does, whatever he's doing, whether he's working as a carpenter or multiplying loaves and fishes, whatever our Lord does, it's always the person that does the action. Persons do actions. In our Lord, there's only one person. The second person, the most blessed trinity, God the Son. This means that everything our Lord does, everything, every single thing he does, whether it's breathing, whether it's sleeping, whether it's performing a miracle, everything is done by God. In Christ our Lord, there's one person and two natures, and the two natures of Christ our Lord are united in that one divine person. They're united in that one divine person. Now, the theologians have a fancy $4 term for this union of the two natures and the one divine person. It's called the hypostatic union. If you ever hear or read the word hypostatic union, we don't have to be intimidated by the fancy terminology at all because now we know exactly what it means. It means the union of the two natures of Christ in the one person. The union of his divine nature and his human nature and the divine person, the second person of the most blessed trinity. It's a personal union. That's where the union is, in the person. The two natures are united in the one person. That's the hypostatic union. So if we ever come across that term, hypostatic union, now we all know what it means. Now this just leaves us in a slightly more luminous darkness. But if we really love our Lord, we want to know as much as we can about him, okay? Pondering the last gospel will bear fruits here. That's something good that we should ponder every time we hear it. We can think about these things we know, about the, the one person and the two natures. So that's the foundational truth anyway when we're dealing with the icon. We're dealing at the foundation, the first level, of course, we're dealing with Christ our Lord. Now that we've taken a quick look at that, let's consider some of the other truths that are being expressed in this work of art. 
St. Alphonsus points out that when Adam rebelled against the Lord and hid himself from his face, God went in search of Adam. He went in search of Adam and called after him as if with tears. Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? It's the words of a father seeking a lost son. And here we see Christ our Lord reaching out to us with open arms. It's the posture of a good shepherd seeking a lost sheep, calling out to his lost sheep. St. Dennis the Areopagite says that God follows sinners like a despised lover, begging them to not destroy their immortal souls. We can see the wounds in his hands, pierced hands. He's reaching out in love to reassure us that even though we've hurt him, he won't hurt us. St. John Chrysostom says that Christ himself begs us. And what is he begging us to do? He's begging us to be reconciled with God. Because it's not God who's acting like an enemy, but it is us. And then we can see his heart with the flames pouring out, symbolizing our Lord's love for us. And that may be the most astonishing thing, because we can all say, each one of us can say honestly that God loves me. And if that isn't astonishing enough, ask yourself, God loves me, but what am I? I'm proud, rebellious, sinful dust. And the infinite God loves me. Each one of us can say that. And he's come down on a search and rescue mission to save us. And he's waiting for us with open arms. He waits for us back there in the confessional to heal our wounds, get us straightened out, back on the path to heaven. And he's waiting for us up there in the most blessed sacrament of the altar to give us the strength to do our duties and not fall into our bad habits and our sins. And why is he doing all that? Because he loves us. And that's what's expressed with those flames, huh? How great is that love he has for us? Our Lord said to St. Matilda, quote, My love for souls is yet the same as that love which I had for them at the time of my passion. I would die as many times as there are souls to save. And he said to St. Gertrude the Great, if it were useful, I would suffer all that I have suffered for the entire world to save you alone. In other words, our Lord loves us and has loved us from all eternity with such great love that each one of us can truly say to himself, if I were the only sinner that ever lived and everyone else were spotless and immaculate, our Lord loves me so much that he would gladly become man and suffered his terrible passion and death just for me. If I were the only sinner, he would have still done all that just for me because he has a burning desire that each one of us spend eternity with him in heaven. So why is his sacred heart visible? It's not because it's outside of his chest mounted on his clothes. That's ridiculous. It's because his sacred heart is so white hot and incandescent with the fire of his love that it's shining forth from the interior, 
shines forth in brilliance. Those flames aren't just symbolic. Some of the saints have also experienced, in a small way, their own hearts burning and glowing with the divine love. For example, the heart of St. Paul the Cross was inflamed with divine love to such a point that his clothing would always be scorched in the region which lay over his heart. St. Gerard Magella, who also experienced these flames of love, explained, quote, he's explaining how this could be. God is a consuming fire. When he enters a soul, he inflames it. And its affections sometimes become so intense that they even appear on the body. Close quote. St. Gerard Magella. On one occasion, St. Gerard was speaking to some Carmelites through the grill. Now, in the speak room of a Carmel, there's two of these great big heavy-duty iron grills. They're about 18 inches apart. I can't remember. So when you're, if you're in the speak room speaking to the cloistered Carmelites, they're on one side of the grill, separated from you by these big, giant iron grates. Anyway, St. Gerard was speaking to the nuns when he suddenly fell into an ecstasy. The nuns stated, and I quote, He became as luminous as the sun and incandescent to such a degree that the iron grate with its ornamental points bent under his hands like soft wax. Close quote. Now if St. Paul the Cross burnt with such divine love, his heart would scorch his clothes. And St. Gerard burnt with such divine love that he glowed like the sun and softened iron. And their love is just a tiny reflection of the love burning in our Lord's heart Imagine how the sacred heart of our Lord, God himself, burns with love. Of course, he kept that heaven, except on certain occasions, like when he revealed a portion of that to St. Margaret Mary. She got the slightest glimpse of that love burning in his heart. She comments on it. St. Margaret Mary, quote, If you only knew how much I feel drawn to love the sacred heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has strengthened me in the conviction that he takes great pleasure in being known, loved, and honored by his creatures. This pleasure is so great that he promised me that all those who are devoted and consecrated to him will never be lost. Since he is the source of all blessings, he will shower them in abundance on every place where a picture of his divine heart shall be set up and honored. He will reunite broken families will protect and help those who are in any necessity and those who approach him with confidence. He will turn aside the blows of divine justice so as to restore to grace those who have fallen from it. His sacred heart is the Holy of Holies, the very sanctuary of love. He is all-powerful to bring men peace, turning aside the just punishments of our sins, and obtaining mercy for us. Close quote. He promised me that all those who are devoted and consecrated to him will never be lost. He will shower blessings in abundance on every place where a picture of his divine heart shall be set up and honored. He will reunite broken families. He will protect and help those who are in need and who approach him with confidence. He will restore grace to those who have fallen from it and turn aside the just punishments our sins have drawn upon us and obtain mercy for us. I'll read the promises the Sacred Heart made to St. Margaret Mary for those Catholics who are devoted to his Sacred Heart. We've all heard them before, but they bear repeating. Number one, I will give them 
all the graces necessary for their state of life. Number two, I will give peace in their families. Number three, I will console them in all their troubles. Number four, they shall find in my heart an assured refuge during life and especially at the hour of death. Number five, I will pour abundant blessings down on all their undertakings. Number six, sinners shall find in my heart the source and infinite ocean of mercy. Number seven, tepid souls shall become fervent. Number eight, fervent souls shall rise speedily to great perfection. Number nine, I will bless the homes in which the image of my sacred heart shall be exposed and honored. Number ten, I will give to priests the power to touch the most hardened hearts. Number eleven, those who propagate this devotion shall have their name written in my heart and it shall never be effaced. And number twelve, the all-powerful love of my heart will grant to all those who shall receive communion on the first Friday of nine consecutive months the grace of final repentance. They shall not die under my displeasure, nor without receiving the sacraments. My heart shall be their assured refuge at that last hour. Our Lord loves us, and he loves to be loved and to be known and to be honored by us. He burns with the desire for each one of us to spend eternity in heaven with him. But do we burn with that same desire? Just after Corpus Christi in June of 1675, our Lord appeared to St. Margaret Mary while she was praying before the Most Blessed Sacrament. She describes what happened, and as we listen to our Lord's words, it might be profitable for each one of us to examine our lives and see if our Lord might be speaking to any of us, okay? St. Margaret Mary, quote, Our Lord revealed to me his divine heart and said, Behold this heart, which has loved men so much that it has spared nothing, in order to testify to them its love. And in return, I receive from the greater number of men nothing but ingratitude, with irreverence and sacrileges by the coldness and contempt which they show me in the sacrament of love. Close quote. So the crown of thorns and the wound and the cross symbolize the reality that our sins, our irreverences and sacrileges and coldness and contempt for him, the most blessed sacrament, inflict terrible pain on his heart. And yet he still loves us, and not with some kind of sissified, feminized love, but with a crucified, heroically strong love, a love that's a an absolute consuming fire. And he's burning with that very love right now, right there. And if the heavenly love that filled St. Gerard Magella could melt the iron grills that held in the Carmelites, just think of what the consuming fire that fills the sacred heart can do in our own spiritual life and things that hold us down. If we properly dispose ourselves and make fervent Holy Communions, and then spend the next 15 to 20 minutes fanning those flames of love which are burning in the depths of our hearts by telling our Lord that we love Him. 
and begging Him to help us love Him ever more and more. If we're not sure what to say, we can just keep repeating those inspired words of St. Peter. Lord, Thou knowest that I love Thee. Lord, Thou knowest that I love Thee. Lord, Thou knowest that I love Thee. St. Alphonsus says the reason why souls make so little progress in virtue and remain groveling in the same defects and even frequently relapse into mortal sins is because they take but little care to acquire the love of Jesus Christ. But now we know how to practice devotion to the Sacred Heart. Heart of Jesus, burning with love for us, inflame our hearts with love of Thee. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, Amen.